Welcome back to Toxic Bliss, Surviving Narcissism, with me, Eamon Reese. In this episode, a lot of things will be coming to a head and, well, exploding into millions of little pieces. Before we get to that, I wanted to talk a bit about where I was emotionally after these past few months living with Mike. I was constantly walking around on eggshells. That phrase may seem a bit overused, but it's really true. Random things would set him off on either an angry tirade or send him flying into a long-lasting juvenile pout. I can see from my current perspective how these episodes were used to keep me away from a topic he wanted to avoid, but I didn't make that connection back then. Living in constant fear of another outburst was taking its toll on me. At a certain point, I just became tired of fighting and chose that alluring path of least resistance at every turn. He was truly a Jekyll and Hyde character. The good, peaceful times were so very good. He was warm and attentive and loving, and he could make me feel like the only other person alive in the universe. During those moments, I was sure that we were made for each other and that he was the answer to all of my dreams. But the speed of his mood changes and the volatility of his anger would leave me questioning my sanity. How could he be the same person? Did he have an evil twin that lived in a closet and came out once in a while? How could one person be both the answer to my prayers and my worst nightmare at the same time? One thing narcissists are very good at is making you feel like all the bad things are your fault. All of them. He would get in trouble at work and get sent home early or even fired, and it would be my fault. I had stressed him out in some way before he left and he couldn't concentrate at work, or I made his lunch wrong and he was hungry and mad, so he had to come home. If I wanted him to keep a job, I had to learn to be better. He would nitpick at every little thing I did. I held my fork funny and it irritated him. I would blow my nose and sometimes it would make a little squeaky noise, which he found cute and adorable when we first got together, but now it was an unbearable annoyance. The smoking was a huge issue too. He hated it to death, but I was just too stressed out to give it up. I should get therapy for my stress if it was so bad, he'd tell me. This is the stage of the narcissistic relationship called devaluing. It generally happens anywhere from one to three months into the relationship, and at first everything you do is lovely and endearing, but quickly that changes, and suddenly everything you do is pissing them off. I spent so much time chasing that other version of him from the initial infatuation and love-bombing stage, If I could just do better, he would be that way again. If I just loved him harder, or if I was more understanding, more patient, if I didn't piss him off every time I turned around. I know he could be that man again. I had seen him. I had fallen in love with him. I needed him, and I would do anything I had to, to get that version of him back. It just might take a little more time. There was also a monumental amount of gaslighting going on as well. Gaslighting is a term that was taken from a 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton called Gaslight. It was adapted into a film in 1944, and it's based on the story of a woman whose husband systematically convinces her that she's going insane. The term applies the same way in modern-day psychology. Mike's best gaslighting tactic 
was telling me that I remembered something wrong or that it never happened to begin with. Generally, this was associated with something that he had done wrong, of course. It started with little things, like, of course I didn't leave the lights on upstairs. I wasn't even up there. Things small enough like that where I would think I must have imagined it. After all, there'd be no reason to lie about something so small and silly. But it slowly graduated to bigger things, like, you never gave me any money for the phone pill, what are you talking about? You were supposed to pay the phone bill. And I would show him the ATM receipt where I had withdrawn the exact amount of cash equaling the bill, and he would say, well, you must have spent it on something, how do I know what you did with it? There was one moment, at some point over that summer, where I had started to think that I might have a yeast infection. It was horrible and uncomfortable. Maybe it was from the pool, he suggested, as we had been swimming every day, and I often stayed in my bathing suit long after. Until I had gone into the bathroom in Mike's bedroom one morning to get some shampoo, and found a prescription tube of monostat on their sink with Tina's name on it. Yeah, that was gross. That was beyond gross. But he told me, ah, that's old, that's from like years ago, despite the date on the label from that very summer. When confronted with the evidence like this, he would turn it around on me. Well, if that's what you think of me, why do you even love me? How do you think anyone that loved you like I love you could do such a thing? Why doesn't anyone ever believe in me? Everyone always thinks the worst of me, and, and I thought that you were different. No, you're just like everyone else. God, couldn't he just find anyone to love him for real? Maybe he was just destined to be alone for his whole life. Because he had successfully chipped away at my sense of reason and self-esteem over several very intense months, I had genuinely started to think that I was simply a horrible person. I must be jaded and bitter and could never really love someone the way they deserved. Instead of feeling like he was lucky to have me, I felt that I was undeserving of him and that every day I got to even be in his presence was a small miracle. The physical and logistical problems also had a hand in this. I didn't have enough money on my own to rent an apartment by myself for me and Maggie. I was too afraid of my mother's wrath and judgment to call her and ask if I could come back home. Eddie was still missing in action, and I assumed he was with his crazy mother. I felt completely alone and should be grateful that I even had a place to sleep. And yet, through all of this, the good moments were still astoundingly good. That's all about to change, though, so let's get into it. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I had just found out that I was pregnant. One thing Mike used to keep me on the path of his chosen reality was the idea that someday we'd have a baby together and our own family. I wanted that so bad. I could not wait to have another child, and his child, too. I decided that I would tell him on his birthday. It was coming up soon, and Tina was planning a trip back home to her family with the baby, and we'd have several weeks alone. It would be the perfect time. Tina needed help one day finding Bella's birth certificate for some reason, and she was rummaging through the paperwork all throughout the apartment. I offered to help her look and took over a large stack of files and papers. One of the first folders I opened was filled with pages, all stamped with the police logo at the top. What was this? Hmm. I read the first page. Oh, this was the police report and associated documents from his arrest. I mentioned it to Tina and asked if she minded if I read it. Go ahead, she said. So I did. After I finished, I looked at her and said, Is this true, what you told the police? Yeah, she said. I thought you knew. Uh, no. 
That's not what Mike told me happened at all. Not even close. Really? She asked. Yeah, really. If this is true, my God, why did you even let him come back here when he got out? She just looked at me and shrugged. Yeah, I get it, I said. I really did get it, and that scared me more than anything. The police report had detailed the fight they had had that night with a very different narrative than the one Mike had relayed to me. The fight did begin in the upstairs bedroom, as he had described, and I would come to learn eventually every lie he told always had some nuggets of truth buried in them. Tina had found out that he was driving to meet me in Connecticut and that we were having an internet affair, so she did know this whole time, hmm, and she confronted him with an ultimatum. If you leave, you aren't coming back here. You just stay in Connecticut with her. He tried to convince her that we were just friends, but she wasn't buying it. He went to walk out of the room, and she was blocking the doorway, also as he had described to me. But when she wouldn't move, he pushed her into the hallway and jacked her up against the wall with his hands around her neck. He let go after a few seconds and went downstairs. She did follow him, but not to yell at him anymore. She was running to get the phone to call the police. He beat her to it and wouldn't let her have it. She sat down on the couch and tried to calm him down enough to let his guard down so she could get the phone. But once she had gone for the phone again, he realized what she was doing and grabbed her by the hair, pulled her onto the floor, and kicked her. Remember, she was pregnant at the time, too. She scrambled away from him and scooped up Bella on her way and ran out the front door. Yes, he had done this right in front of Bella. She ran out into the grass in the front yard and just started screaming for someone to call 911. One of the neighbors heard her, called 911, and then brought Tina and Bella into their apartment until the police arrived. There were photographs of the marks on her neck and the bruise that had started to form on her side where he kicked her. Thankfully, he had missed her stomach and the baby was fine. He was obviously arrested on the spot and taken straight to jail. Tina, this is awful. Oh my God, I said. I know, she replied. Had he ever done this before? No, she said. That was the only time he'd ever gotten physical like that. I sat back inside. I didn't know what to do with this new information. I mean, I knew what I should have done, but I didn't do it. Much for the same reasons Tina took him back after that event. I don't think those anger management classes are going to fix this, I said to her. She just shook her head and said, nope. I put the folder on the table and continued helping her find Bella's birth certificate. We finally found it, and she took it, thankful for my help. Later that evening, when Mike had got home from work, we sat down in the living room to eat dinner, all together. Mike saw the folder on the table. Oh, what's that? he asked. Take a look, I said. I handed him the folder, and he opened it and went red in the face. Oh, that stupid thing. Yeah, that. You want to explain it? I asked. It's just a story, he said. That's not what happened. Tina was sitting right there in the room with us. So I said, Tina said that's what happened? Yeah, well, that's her perception of what happened, but you know there are always two sides to every story. Actually, there are three sides to every story. His side, her side, and the truth. I'd really like to hear the truth for a change. Hey, I told you exactly what happened, he said, getting a bit defensive now. Right, I said. You told me your version, and Tina told her version to the police in a sworn affidavit. Are you saying that the truth is somewhere in the middle, or or that Tina was lying under oath? He scoffed. You just think whatever you want. You never believe me anyway. Mike, I said gently. 
No, he said as he stood up and threw his plate at the table, shattering it and sending food flying. You're determined to always see the worst in me. It's like you're trying to find reasons to hate me. Go ahead, hate me. See if I care. He stormed out the back door. I let him go this time without chasing him. It's time for a short break. We'll be back in just a minute and we'll pick up right where we left off. Welcome back. Tina was picking up the pieces of the broken plate and I told her that I'd get it. She should just go upstairs and check on the baby. I'll clean up because I'm the one that set him off after all. She nodded and went upstairs. I cleaned up Mike's mess and noted that this was becoming a thing, cleaning up all of his messes for him, and I did the dinner dishes too. I went outside to have a cigarette afterwards, and I found him sitting right there in my thinking spot. He hadn't stormed off too far, I noticed. I guessed that he expected me to come out after him, and was probably surprised that I hadn't. Oh, you're here, I said surprised. Well, duh, where'd you think I'd be? I hate it when people duh me. I figured he would have gone off for a walk or something, I said, trying to sound unaffected. Oh, and you didn't even come after me, he said with a breathy chuckle. No, I didn't. I understand that you don't like being confronted with that sort of issue, but it affects me too, and I have a right to have feelings and an opinion about it. Why? Why does it affect you? he asked. Have I ever hit you? Have I ever slammed you up against the wall? No, and I never would. Tina just picks at me and picks and picks, and eventually I get so fed up that I just snap. I hate it, but you don't do that to me, so I'd never snap at you. I just blinked at him silently. Puh, see? You don't believe me. I can't believe that you're blaming that on Tina, I said. Well, it's her fault. Think about it. I've never done that to you, so clearly it's not you, it's her. She just pushes all of my buttons. I can't help it. Those anger management classes were clearly not sinking in. I don't love Tina, he continued. I've never loved her the way I love you. I would never, ever hurt you. God, what do I have to do to make you believe me? I don't know, I said honestly. I love you. I do know that, though. He grabbed me around the waist and pulled me close to him, clutching me tightly as he sobbed heavily, his face pressed against my stomach. I just stood there and held him and let him cry it out. I believed at the time that his sorrow was genuine, but I did also realize it was a bit dramatic. Somehow he seemed to pick up on what I was thinking. See how much I love you? You make me feel things so strongly. I'm never this emotional. I could never hurt you, see? Come on, let's go inside, I said. I'm tired. We went inside, and we curled up on the couch and played a little Diablo together. We fell asleep like that, and Tina found us the next morning. There wasn't anything bad about it, don't get me wrong, we were each at a different end of the sofa, not at all entangled in any kind of lover's embrace. She woke Mike, which in turn woke me, and said he had to get dressed. He was driving her to the airport that morning for her flight back home. I got up and helped them load everything into the car. It's amazing how much baggage you need to take for a tiny eight-pound human. He returned from the airport a few hours later, and now we had two weeks, two glorious weeks all alone. We had Bella and Maggie with us, but it still felt like we were alone with our little family, happy and peaceful. We took the girls to the beach, we went to their favorite pizza place, all the usual family kind of activities, and we were having an amazing time. 
I was perfectly happy, and so was he. His birthday was in a few days, and I had managed to sneak away to the store by myself to do a little birthday shopping. It was my intention to spoil him rotten and show him that birthdays really can be wonderful. I was going to bake a great cake, and we'd go out to dinner to our favorite restaurant, not Joe's Crab Shack. <laughs> the day before his birthday, I was in the kitchen cleaning up, and he walked in and announced that we needed to talk. Sure, what's up? I asked as I turned around and dried my hands. You need to leave. Go back to your mom or something. I don't care, but you have to go. We're done. <laughs> I laughed. This has got to be one of his pranks, right? Right, I said. I'm serious. You need to leave before Tina comes back from her trip. Get your stuff together and figure out where you're going. Mike, what are you talking about? Are you stupid? Do you not hear the words coming out of my mouth? He snapped in a tone I'd not heard from him before. He was cold, ice cold. His eyes were small and dark. His mouth was a solid straight line, and he was even breathing funny. Are you crazy? What is going on? What did I do? I asked him. We're having a great week, and tomorrow's your birthday, and this comes out of the blue? Please tell me what's happening, I asked, panicking. If this was a joke, it was definitely not funny anymore. I don't know how to make it any easier to understand. I don't want you. You have to leave. I'm staying with Tina, and that's final. It's not final, I yelled. I'm pregnant. I was going to surprise you tomorrow for your birthday. Well, you'll just have to have an abortion then. I don't want it. You should start packing, he said, and he walked out of the room. I sank to the floor right where I was standing. This can't be possible. This isn't real. This is not real. I caught my breath for a moment, and then I went in the living room to talk to him. Mike, I said as I entered the room. He spun around and threw his cup full of soda at my head. It missed and hit the wall and shattered into a million pieces. You have to leave, he yelled with a look on his face that made my blood run cold. I ran back to the kitchen, grabbed the phone, and called 911. He stomped out the front door and slammed it behind him as I made the call. I waited in the living room for the police to arrive. I wasn't sure where Mike was, but I hoped that they got here before he got back. A few minutes later, they were at the door, with him in handcuffs, and they all walked in. They checked his ID and emptied his pockets, and he just stood there, fuming silently. They took him out to the car, and one of the officers came in to talk with me. I showed him the folder with the reports from his prior arrest and said that I had felt threatened and he was in a rage. I showed them the remains of the smashed glass and the soda that was still wet on the wall where it had hit. The officer made a call and then informed me that he was being arrested, and I can make a statement to press charges if I wanted to, but they were also arresting him on a probation violation because he wasn't allowed to be in this apartment. I remember the officer looking at me and asking me why I was crying. That seemed so weird to me. Why wouldn't I be crying? I didn't answer him. I just made a face like, are you serious? And he dropped it. He gave me a copy of the report that he had scribbled down and a business card for a domestic violence advocate to call and said that someone would be calling me soon to get a proper statement. Then they left. I paced around for a bit, wondering exactly what I should do next. I had stopped crying, and I was oddly calm and thinking somewhat clearly. The first thing I had to do was go to the school and pick up the girls. I did that and got them some McDonald's on the way home. Cooking dinner was not high on my priority list. 
I shooed them upstairs to play and told them to stay there quietly as I had to make some important phone calls. The first call I made was to my mother. I told her a basic outline of the story and said, just don't lecture me. What I need right now is help. You can lecture me about it later. She was very good about it and said she'd book train tickets for me and Maggie and call me with the departure time. I thanked her and said I had to go make some more calls and I'd talk to her later on. Next, I called Tina at her family's house. I told her that Mike had been arrested and that I was getting on a train back to Connecticut and what did she want me to do with Bella? She, of course, had 10,000 questions. Were Mike and I having an affair? Yes, and I explained the circumstances of that. I wanted her to know that at least at the beginning, I had had no idea that they were actually married and together. She said, I know, I know, he does this a lot. It's not your fault. Then she asked if I was pregnant. I said, yes, but how did you know? She explained that he was always trying to get his new girl pregnant. It was his thing. Did he have other kids? I asked. I don't really know, she said. Did you guys have a big fight? Did he hit you? Were her next questions, and I said, it wasn't a fight as such, and he didn't hit me, but he threw a glass at my head, but he missed. And then I called the police. Mm-hmm, was all she said. She told me to hang on a minute while she talked with her family about getting a flight for Bella to go up there. She came back a minute later and said they'll be booking her a flight as soon as possible, and she would let me know when, and could I please bring her to the airport and see her off safely. Well, of course I would, I said, and we hung up. My mother called back right after that. The train was booked for the day after tomorrow. They had a train that I could have gotten that night, but they didn't have any of those nice rooms available, just normal seating, and that would have been horrible for a 24-hour train ride, so she got the first available departure with a room. Okay, that's fine. I had to get Bella to the airport somehow tomorrow, so I needed a little time. Someone from the police department called me next. She told me that Mike would be seeing the judge the next morning at 9, and I could go to the hearing if I wanted to. I could either press charges on the domestic assault or just let him ride on the violation of probation. Either way, I should go to the hearing and speak to the judge. I thanked her and hung up as another call was coming in. Now it was Tina again. Bella's flight was scheduled for the next day late afternoon. That worked. I made sure she got on the plane. Okay, thanks, bye. Everything was in order. I had a plan. I knew what to do, and soon this whole nightmare would be over. Once the anger started to dissipate and the adrenaline rush faded, I crashed. I curled up in a little ball on the couch and just cried and cried and cried until I fell asleep. The girls woke me up not long after and asked what was going on. I sat them down and explained the basics of it. I told Bella that she was going to fly out to be with her mom tomorrow and told Maggie that we were going to go see Grandma and everything was going to be okay. They were so young, and that explanation was good enough for them. They scampered back off to play. I don't remember too much of the rest of the day. I know that at some point, I got the girls to bed and fell asleep myself. I woke up the next morning, got them to school, and headed downtown for Mike's hearing. On the drive to the courthouse, I was vacillating between wanting to get him out and wanting to keep him in jail for the foreseeable future. In my ponderings, I came up with a plan. A terrible, fantastic, devious plan. One thing to note about a narcissist and codependent relationship is this. The narcissist will do anything and everything in their power to get you. The codependent, however, will do anything and everything in their power to keep you. 
It's a symbiotic dance of doom that is destructive and dangerous, and I was ready to play. In the next episode, we'll see if my evil plan works or backfires. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. People ask me what my-